I do have a clap. Okay, we we're definitely live, and I do have a little clap there. They gave you a little soundboard, which is kind of cool. So I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. We are live, and we are so excited because tonight we are talking about jobs, and we have Chelsea Avery with us, who is... I, I just call you a job curator extraordinaire because that's what you do. Um, and you run skip jobs, which I found about, I think it's been over a year now. Um, and we chatted and we're excited to get into it. Oh, the clapping's funny. I got to figure out how to, how to figure out how to stop it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so Chelsea, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do with Skip, and then obviously I have tons of questions to ask you and we want to save some time at the end for the audience as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy chatting with you and I am really thrilled to be here and to have so many people listening on to be excited about what the current state of the EdTech job market is. So I'm Chelsea and I love the job title, Job Curator Extraordinaire. So I'm not going to try to tap that. And I may even change my LinkedIn to say that because it's a perfect way of describing what I love to do with Skip, which is share jobs and share jobs that are meaningful. They do really cool things where we're actually helping students transform their lives or educators transform their teaching practices. And they're going to pay well and give you work-life balance. So that sense of not just finding jobs, but finding really, really great jobs. The curation part, something I love. So. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, and I love the fact that you do, you do, I know you're going to talk about this. You do this with the, you know, a salary in mind and salary transparency is very big to people nowadays. And there's a lot of laws and things surrounding that in certain states. So I'm glad that you have a site that does all that. And I've watched your site like evolve from just posting jobs and now there's categories and now there's coaching and all these different things that you're doing. Um, and I know we have a lot of uh, educators or transition teachers that are in the audience, especially the, they listen to the podcast. They've listened. Your episode is one of the top episodes um, of our show. So what are the top three if you had to pick the top three remote roles that educators are transitioning um, into that offer that salary minimum, if you want to talk about that. Right, definitely. So I may not be able to keep it quite to three, but I think there are some major, major categories. Customer success continues to be the top on um, job skip that I see people moving into or ed skip. That's my new, my new branding is ed skip. Um, so customer success, I'm seeing it really consistently. It's a great fit for educators, whether they're working um, directly with teachers or working more with admin to create programming. It's a really good fit. Also seeing a lot of instructional design. That's, of course, your field. Um, instructional design is it does require that additional upskilling, but it's something that teachers do really well and they enjoy that creative aspect in continuing to develop curriculum. And what I'm seeing really as an interesting pattern is that the jobs are remaining pretty steady and consistent throughout um, the couple of years I've been doing this. Um, I'm still seeing sales. Um, initially, sales was this like meant to be an entry level into ed tech. And now I think people are really saying, wait a second, I think I would enjoy sales or I wouldn't enjoy sales. So it's still very popular. 
But one of the things that I'm really seeing now is people interested in program management. And program management, I mean, educators are program managers. Um, that is literally what we do is we develop programming for our students. And so really being able to recognize that that is what we do and then apply for those jobs confidently. That's the big trend that I'm seeing. And I'm definitely seeing people move into that, both people I'm working with um, individually in coaching and in my lar larger LinkedIn audience. So um, yeah. train training, I can't. <laughs> Can't not say training. That one's also important. So I mean, there are so many great options. We have so many skills. They transfer so well that I can't narrow it down to three. But customer success, program management, instructional design. Let's call it learning and development. So it's instructional design yes, training. There, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, program management is definitely a huge part of L and D. And you know, as an instructional designer, I like especially working in higher education. Like, I just thought we were just creating courses and that is not the case. <laughs> that is totally not the case. And you know that you said, cause you said of that upskilling of instructional designers and what we have to do. But I love the fact that you're, the jobs that you're posting um, are really a wide variety and you post jobs from companies with, with a mission that you're, you're aligned with that skips align with. And it's just so like, it's nonprofit, it's companies we've heard of maybe in the vendor space. Um, but it's, it's a wide array. And I just, I just love that. That's what you do. Yeah. I love it too. Cause there, I mean, every day I find a new company and I'm like, there's somebody working on solving that problem for our communities and our schools. And it's really nice because we just don't have the capacity to solve everything in our own communities and having resources that we can pull in, particularly in area. I live in a rural area, so our resources are limited. So it's really yeah. great to have this expansion available. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, gosh, and it's, sometimes it's so hard to kind of, you know, when you're thinking about jobs and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of join in um kind of kind of combine some questions and Let's do it. maybe go off script because you know <laughs> once my mind starts going then it doesn't stop so one of the things that i really want to know for educators like the tools and resources why you provide the job listings and you work with these companies to get the jobs on your site so what are some of the tools and resources that you provide that can specifically aid you know educators who are looking to transition into these fields that you just mentioned and beyond because obviously there's more than just those few that you mentioned right so there's the job board that i do i've also recently restarted my newsletter i let it let it fall fall by the wayside um but one of the things I loved about doing the newsletter. You did? I didn't, I didn't even notice. I still get the the stuff. You know, you know, that's funny. As a, you say you, you think you're letting stuff fall by the wayside, but I'm like, oh my gosh, Chelsea is just on top of this. She's sending another newsletter. There's more information. It didn't fall by the wayside. It still exists. Go sign up for it. Yes, it does exist. And one of the things that I've always loved doing is doing these like deep dives into a particular field. So I did student success, which is basically like the implementation role of customer success. I did that last month. And this month I'm diving into program management. And I'm really able to say, what are these questions I'm getting in my audience? How can I answer them for everyone and not just for the person I'm talking to at the moment? Because these are questions I get all the time in one-on-ones. So I restarted the newsletter doing the deep dives and that's exciting. But part of what I'm doing in the newsletter is also I'm doing skills analysis. So I've launched this um, tool where I'm asking questions and they're based on 
all these job descriptions I have, I mean, I literally have hundreds of bullet points from companies and I have hundreds of bullet points from educators. And I'm saying, how do these align? Because that's what I've always done really well when I do the coaching is I'm able to say, oh, you've got those three tasks. They fall into this bucket. Um, it's implementation or it's training, what have you. And so now what I'm doing is actually starting to say, can I automate that process? Can I ask questions that will help people discover this for themselves so that they can quickly answer a few questions and really identify, this is what I need in my resume. This is what I need to take out of my resume. And then long-term, I'm really hoping to be able to add, this is how I can indicate accomplishments and metrics. So that what you're really doing is getting something that's very tailored and customized to people in our field moving into the kinds of jobs that are typical. And so the skills analysis is that's it's a coming up as a new product launch. Once I really um, get my question bank going, I'm going to be implementing that as part of a coaching product. So instead of having to do all that work yourself, I'll have done the back end and you can actually just it's I like ChatGPT, it. but it's accurate. Yes. And we've talked about this before on the show. This reminds me of a conversation we previously had when you got to these other job sites and you're typing in instructional designer and they're sending you something like, you know, graphic design, or that's not even, that's pretty close, but that's not what an instructional designer is. Or if they're sending you something like, Oh my gosh, I don't know. Like I have to save some of the funny ones so I can share them with you. Like masonry or something i don't know how like the, the algorithms like think i want to be like a data entry specialist or or something along those lines it's just so crazy to me so it sounds like the product that you're developing and that's about to come out is something that's really personalized and really is gonna know what you need and find that niche like that's one of the things i tell people when we have these conversations is find your niche where you want to be what do you, program management project management instructional design where, where, where do you want to be? Yes, definitely. And that's, that's the piece where I'm still working on the product development is trying to figure out there's so many different avenues you can use this information for. You can use it to tailor a job description or tailor your resume for a particular job description to figure out career clarity in the first place or to create that sort of master resume so you don't have to do as much work. So there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, and I'd love to, enter, I love your point about the job boards, because if I could integrate that into the job board, then yes, you could have personalized job, um, personalized job posts that came to you. Because yes, the, the ones that stand out to me is you Google customer success. Well, we throw it in LinkedIn. You Google customer success on LinkedIn and you get product manager jobs. And I'm like, those are two very different skills that are required for that. Yeah. One of them is... Is something that educators can do. And the other is something that you need like three to five years of product experience to do. Right. And it's really frustrating that they lump them together. Um, but that's that's what happens when you're using these big, big algorithms rather than curated databases. You've got to start yeah. with something that actually has the right information from the beginning. Absolutely. So all of your jobs that you post on your site are remote work. So working from home. And, and I want to know something before I actually dive into this question. Do you differentiate between working from home? Because to some people working from home, you have to be in a, in a certain location. Like sometimes they'll list out like a state and remote work. Remote, remote to me means anywhere. Working from home means you might have to be in a certain location. Is that how you differentiate it? Or am I way off basis there? I feel like that's something I've definitely heard before. I'm not sure how many, I've seen people do work from home 
in parentheses remote. And I'm like, are those different things it's, or not? It's confusing. I saw your poll too about yeah. that. This is why I'm bringing this up because I saw that poll on LinkedIn. I'm like, it got me thinking, Chelsea, like, what do we call it? I know. <laughs> I and there's, know. No great, there's no great term for it. I think of what I'm separating out right now is remote jobs are jobs that are available anywhere in the U.S. And I do okay. stick with U.S. because once you go into international hiring, there are a lot of complications um, and big, big potential problems um, for compliance and things like that. So I stick with remote is U.S. anywhere nationally. So the jobs you see on the main page of the um, job board are all going to be that. And then I have a small page for I think I renamed it location-specific um, jobs. Uh, yeah. Location-specific remote jobs was what I came up with. And the idea there is that some jobs want you to be in a particular state because you're going to have to travel frequently regionally. Um, so you need to be in Georgia because you're servicing clients who are in Georgia and maybe across the line in Florida too. Um, but some states also, the hiring laws are just so challenging and the tax laws, if you've ever lived in two states for different parts of the year, you may have paid double taxes like I did when I moved from Georgia to Wisconsin. And companies have that same problem, except that they can be personally sued as well, the, the HR managers. So they can often really say, wait a second, I need to make sure that I'm comfortable with these state laws. I can't do every all 50 states, but I have 10 state laws that are similar. I can hire in those 10 states. So a lot of times it just depends on the capacity of a hiring manager. And so I call those location-specific remote jobs. So um, sometimes that makes a lot sense of locations, to me. sometimes they're not. So. so for people like educators who are used to being in the classroom every day mm -hmm. and seeing their learners or seeing their colleagues, how what are some of the challenges that they might face when they get to a remote work setting? It's like I see a lot of posts when people do transition and it's like a relief, but then sometimes there is there are those consequences to remote work. Like you don't get to interact with people every day in the sense that you're in person and like the human thing is, is missing. So how do you think that, what, where do, how can they overcome these things? What are the challenges and how can they overcome them? Right. I think with remote work, you have to be a lot more proactive about building those relationships and really saying, Hey, can we chat? Um, or even having like a particular reason um, to say, I'd love to know about this project you're working on, or I think I might need to, our projects might align. Can we kind of talk about traditionally how these roles have been connected to each other or ways that we can support each other more? So having like a really concrete ask to say, let's connect and doing that strategically throughout the organization. So making sure you're connecting regularly with your supervisors, making sure that you're connecting regularly with these teams that are sort of adjacent to the work you do and even your own team. Your own team, you probably already have that structure in place. So really consciously thinking about places where you don't have it. The New York Times just did a um, post on what we know about the dangers of remote work. And one of the interesting things that they said was that women in general um, are finding it harder to get feedback if they're, this is specifically about engineers, but they were early career um, female engineers. And because there wasn't often a really easy way to, to ask follow-up questions, they were falling behind. And I think that's something educators, we don't really worry about as much because we're used to working independently and figuring out answers to questions. But I think it does really highlight that need to make sure that what you're doing is visible 
and making sure that the challenges that you're overcoming are visible so that, you know, it's, it's your, your work product is very much your accomplishments in your mind, your metrics are very much in the mindsets of the people who are not just, they're making decisions about phases, about promotions. So people who are really in charge of your career, uh, the people who they did hire you, but now you're really thinking about what are, what are my, what's my five-year plan? How do I actually make sure that I am going to be able to accomplish that? And I'm not going to be in the same job in five years, unless I want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say too, with remote work, like you're saying to make, make it a purposeful to develop those relationships. It might take a little bit longer. And I noticed that even, um, how long have I been remote work since COVID? So almost three years now, it does take a little bit longer, but one of the great things that we do, um, in, in pharmacy and we, we meet quarterly. So we have offsites and things so that we can be with our teams and that really rejuvenates us. Um, and that has really helped to develop, you know, those relationships and that cohesion within the team. I know not everybody has afforded that opportunity, but I would say if, if it's possible, it's, it's interesting because some people with remote work, you don't realize it like, oh my gosh, like Nadia, my co-host, she lives in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm in Myrtle Beach. It's literally a two hour drive. And we, we've never met each other in person, but we're going to because we live close to each other. And just if you can, and you know, like a coworker, go meet up with them at a coffee shop. It's, it's really, it's really fun. Um, somebody else lives in Myrtle Beach that found me on LinkedIn and we go meet up at a coffee shop. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, so there are some things like you're saying that we can do to really kind of mitigate those challenges with remote work and make us feel less like we're isolated and more like there, we are a team and there, there's tons of different departments within, you know, larger organizations that, that we're working for. Right. Yeah. And I think that's also one place where ed tech is a little bit unique in the remote environment is that so many of the ed tech companies have always been remote first because their audiences are national. So they're often going to need people who are in particular locations, travel being one of them, but also because you need people that have expertise and well, what's the difference between Texas standards and Maine standards or just the culture of the school systems. So having that that remote first environment, I think means that a lot of these companies have these practices much more standard than your, your, your corporation that went remote because of COVID and is now trying to figure out what to do. Or those CEOs who, I don't, did you see that stat? 63% of CEOs believe that everyone will be back to remote work five days a week in two years. Why did they say that? No, I didn't see because that they stat. want it. Yeah, well, <laughs> Well, I think there's this, that's another place where that visibility, like what you're actually doing becomes important is there's this fear that people are just sitting home doing whatever they want instead right. of actually doing the job. So being able to really say, hey, here is what I'm doing. Here's what I'm not doing is really important, I think, to make sure that companies, if they're not accustomed to this remote work, that really these, these bosses can feel comfortable. Um, but yeah. it's going to be interesting. There's a lot of CEO pushback and there's a lot of worker there pushback. Is. And so we're going to see a lot of changes over the next few years. And that hybrid, uh, one thing we aren't talking about is hybrid workforces, which kind of that in-person you're talking about and the remote, we lose the ability to work where we live. We have to uproot ourselves, but we do gain some of that, that benefit of actually having the in-person connections. So I think yeah. there's a lot to figure out with it. 
But ed tech companies are used to figuring out because a lot of them, so many of them were remote first before the pandemic. So. Absolutely. And I know a lot of my friends who like worked in the, the ed tech industry, like they were remote, but they would travel quite a bit, you know, especially if they were in sales and they were doing some sort of training activities, they would, they would have to travel. And that's still the case. Um, but you know, at Amazon, I'm going to speak a little bit about Amazon, the the RTO, because it's been across the news, is the return to office and, um, you know, having to go in three days a week. I, I mean, it, it's good, but not everybody can do it, like, because I'm in a virtual location in South Carolina, but there's no close office. It's closest is probably Charleston, but it's not even, like, related to pharmacy, and none of my teammates are there, like, we're all over the United States. So you have to be very, like you know, tactful about how you're deciding to do this. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that we get to meet quarterly, but I know there's a lot of people who are just like, you know, I can't afford to drive two hours one way to go into an office three days a week. It's just too much. Um, so. Yeah. And it's, there's not enough of a benefit. I was talking to someone just the other day, they're, they're applying. It's a local, a main company in Portland our nonprofit, and they're looking for a development director. They've been looking for five months. And they're like, this can all be done remotely, except they occasionally need to come in the office. And I'm like, how do you have that worded? And he's like, oh, occasionally you need to come into the office. And I'm like, you know, if you set that up with like, you have to come into the office once a month or once a quarter, you're going to get yeah. a lot more takers for that job. Because yes, exactly. there's exactly something that's practical. And there's something that is just too open-ended to really make, be able to make decisions about your life and the kind of work balance you want to have. Yeah. I was just going to say that the work-life balance with remote work is so much better than it was when I had to go in the office every single day. I felt really rushed on the weekends and sometimes I still do depending upon the workload of do, getting done adult responsibilities. And I know educators and people who are transitioning roles can definitely relate to this going from in-person to remote. And you're like, Oh, um, I have time to go throw a load of laundry linen or, or I can go clean the kitchen. Um, you know, it's like take a little mental health break or go walk around the block. It's, it's really nice. It's really advantageous, you know, especially for mental health and things like that. Yeah. That's what I did before our call. I walked down a couple of blocks, <laughs> took a look at the really beautiful sunset over the ocean and I walked back and I was like, ah, now I'm ready to talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, all right. So one of the things that, you know, educators and other people who are transitioning ask about a lot, I get a lot of LinkedIn messages. I'm sure you do too. Thinking about the skills that we have and what makes them like suitable candidates for these remote roles. So what are some of those things you can identify? Definitely. Um, I wrote them down because one of the things that I think happens is that we we're like, we have so many skills and for starters, identifying which are the most important ones um, is a challenge. But I also, the ones that I tried to focus on are ones that I often see people omit. Um, so that's where um, these are certainly not all of our skills or even they're important, but not necessarily the most important. The ones that I regularly don't see are things like project and program management. So while that's its own career, it's also something that we do in any job that we do. And that's that ability to take all of these moving pieces and put them in this coherent, organized system to develop curriculum programs. All of that work we do, it has these time management, organizational, and coherence building activities going on. Um, then we also have data analysis. This is something I rarely see in educator skills, and we're using data on a daily basis. 
probably an hourly basis. And I think that ability to that educators have to collect a lot of data, to identify what's meaningful in the data, and then more importantly, to be able to use the data. So we're actually taking that data and differentiating curriculum on a regular basis for our students. And we're doing it informally and formally. So qualitatively, quantitatively, there's a lot of data in education. Um, and we don't take full advantage of that um, when we talk about um, that. And then there's also, that doesn't even get us to reporting. We're used to reporting it to stakeholders, aka parents, and communicating what that data means and what's behind it and what you do and don't need to worry about um, in terms of your student's progress. Um, the other one, I went back and forth about what to call it. So I think normally we would call it collaboration. And as I was writing down the kinds of skills that I was thinking about, I was like, this isn't collaboration. So the skills I'm thinking about, the ability to facilitate, we underestimate the ability to facilitate, but I'm sure you've had those meetings you've led that everyone's like, that was the best meeting ever. And you're like, um, that's just what I normally do. Um, as teachers, we're used to managing conversations, making sure people are heard, asking follow-up questions that actually get you to dig into what do you mean? And we're also used to managing difficult conversations. So when those start to go awry or their personality is involved, those are things that we can manage pretty effortlessly. And the reason I don't think, we, we think about that as collaboration because it happens in committees and it happens in groups. But I think what it really is, is leadership. And I think that as educators, we need to actually name that. We are leaders in what we do. Um, yeah, so program project management, data analysis and leadership. All I totally agree with. Uh, absolutely, those skills are necessary. Um, I'm gonna go a little bit off topic because I just thought of something and I know you've heard this too. Um, so the thing that's like with transitioning teachers on Facebook, the, the hashtag and like some of that got some negative negativity around it. I didn't really engage in it. I just saw some things that were happening. And the thing too about coming across job postings that say that teachers, basically they're telling them they're not professionals. And that's the thing I haven't seen. This is not the case. This is not the case. The former educators sitting right here. Um, we are all professionals and we are all, I feel like teachers have a lot of imposter syndrome when it comes to transitioning roles. Do you have any advice there to overcome those things? Um, sometimes I think we're climbing a higher mountain than some other people who've been in the business world, um, you know, previously or been, have more experience. We're kind of competing with those, those people who have that roles. Yeah. You know? It was interesting. Cause I was, I was kind of thinking about just in general, what I would talk about and imposter syndrome was a topic that came up in a couple of different things I was thinking about because when, when I started skip, I started skip partially because all these companies, so these are companies like, I'll just name them, paper, varsity tutors. They pay their professionals um, $60,000, $80,000 a year. They pay their teachers and their tutors ten to 50, at the time, $10 to $12 an hour. I think now they're up to 15 to 20 And they distinguish between that based on the audience. Are you working with adults or are you working with kids? And I think that's really something as a society we should not undervalue. And I think that really it's interesting because you do see that language a lot of times like professional and then tutoring and teaching that's still professional i mean we're doing those same skills the only difference is the audience and the pay so i think yes that imposter syndrome 
is so much a part of how, as a society, we view educators and also as women. I mean, I am in a business women's group and we all gave kind of, we pitched our business and the feedback we got was you're underselling yourselves. You are not communicating it. That is true. (laughs) I I do that all the time. We do that all the time. I know we we do. It's bad. It's so So bad. We got to get past that. Yeah, it's underselling. We're not used to, we know what makes us great, but we're not used to putting it on paper. And so I think some of that is just a habit. And it's been, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm I'm actually, when I work with my coaching people lately, I've been saying, you're underselling yourself because I'm like, it's such a, the word really resonates, I think. Imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. feels scary. Underselling though, we're like, oh wait, I can actually see that. So what I've been doing with people is saying, all right, you're underselling yourself here are the actual skills that you have. When you say, all right, well, I'm just teaching kids. What are you doing? You're facilitating. You're asking questions. Again, that's that leadership role. You're training. Yeah. You're training. Um, You're coaching or mentoring, depending on what role you're in. So really saying, instead of focusing on the audience, step back and say, well, what what are the actual tasks that I'm doing? What do those tasks Mm -hmm. require? What kinds of skills do they require? And how great am I at those skills? Let me tell you about that. Yeah, absolutely. And Marnie was just saying in the chat that she, they get really intimidated by the, you know, the, the, the experience in Potrishan with all the business lingo. Hmm. I know at these bigger, if you're definitely in the corporate space, there's so many acronyms or so many different things. Like it's, it's like learning a different language sometimes when you transition roles and that's okay that the learning curve is high. I feel like, and what you're saying, Chelsea, what I feel like we're saying is that confidence is everything to defeat that imposter syndrome. And you should definitely be confident in the skills that you have. And I also feel like too, like when you say I was a teacher for 26 years, that's 26 years of industry experience to me. That's yes. not anything. You're not starting over. You're not starting at zero. You might be starting at zero in terms of learning something new, but you're, you have experience. You have experience there. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's one reason why educators, when they get hired, they tend to get promoted really quickly is <laughs> because yes. we have all of those skills and those skills, they may not show up in like the resume, but if we think about like this ed skip is like an entire process. Once you get into the job and you're really able to demonstrate what you can do, people give you more tasks and more responsibility. And yeah. if, I, I look at people's career history and teaching 26 years and they move into ed tech and like every eight to 12 months, they are being promoted. They're going quick. They're going quick in the, in the industry. It's, you know, it's maybe one to, it's one to two years and they're, they're going fairly quick because they're organized. They know what the expectations are. They're going to outperform their counterparts just because of the way educators think or, you know, other professionals. So it's, it's good to see that the, that, that sort of respect is happening and that the recognition is there for them because I feel like that helps you again, develop that confidence and just feel like you feel worthy, you know, like teaching, it's a whole bunch of like responsibility being laid on. You have to responsibility being laid on. You're like, I don't know how much more I can take, but in the industry, when you're doing things that are great, people are going to recognize you. Um, and especially if you're in good teams, you have good managers and leaders. It's wonderful. It's, it's a fabulous feeling. I'm saying that from experience. Um, well, and I hear so many educators who are like, you know, 
I went to my first meeting and I was trying to stay quiet because, you know, I'm the new person. I'm just listening, observing. And somebody asked me a question, like, what do I think? And I answered it. And they're like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And someone's like, I don't want to listen to you like that at a long, long time. And I think, yeah. yes, if you are at a place where they're actually valuing your experience and that listening can be so empowering. So, yeah. So are there any, if you're looking at your, the job postings that you're doing um, and your, the things that you're seeing, like the backgrounds, are there any particular backgrounds in education, you know, in any subject matters that are particularly like in demand <laughs> for certain remote roles that you've come across? Yeah. So it's interesting. The Department of Education, of course, funds a lot of programming. And so a lot of this ed tech funding comes from the DOE. And lately that's been federal funding. So as that's starting to fade out, fizzle out, what have you, there the Department of Education is starting to give more guidelines about what you should be looking for when you fund education and fund when districts specifically are purchasing ed tech products. And so there's actually some interesting industry information there. So what they're really talking about is focusing on the problems that we know we have. Um, students are falling behind in math and literacy, particularly as a result of the pandemic. So those are places where you're going to see a lot of job postings, particularly in early literacy, so we can set strong foundations for students moving forward. I've also definitely seen um, equity issues um, coming in. So anyone who has experience with Title I schools, which is a lot of the people I work with, for sure, um, Title I schools, that's an in-demand um, skill set seems to be the wrong term. I'm sure there's a better term there. Um, but I would definitely say that awareness, you know, of what that is and how, what that encompasses, that environment, that ecosystem, because we know it's it's different than the schools that have it all. Right. That's all. That that's a that's a simplified version of it. Yes. The, <laughs> the other trend that I'm seeing, and this is one that's too new for me to really have too much to say about it, but I'm starting to see special education consultants a lot more frequently, and then starting to see special education teachers. And not necessarily in terms of like COVID, um, we just need virtual learning, but uh, um, ed tech companies that are really starting to say um, special education is a large segment of our student population. Can we leverage that to make money? That's the kind of crass way of saying it. But I, I think there's also a sense of this is a place where there's a lot of burdensome regulation and it. It's very challenging for educators. Are there ways that we can start to make that experience and uh, some of the process, particularly that paperwork process, can we make that easier for educators? So I'm starting to see a lot more special education managers, even in like the last month or so. Um, so I think special education is probably going to pop soon, but uh, it's still, again, it's a, it's a new trend, but I'm definitely seeing it much more frequently than I was seeing it. And I'm starting to see special education as like subject matter experts the same way as math and literacy are. Yeah, I was going to say, have a special educator on your ed tech team to give you recommendations about accessibility. Yes. That's gold. Yeah, so we're on your instructional team. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm really glad to hear that that's booming and that's, that's up and coming for educators. Because, you know, even though we're not as educators, if we're not labeled special education teachers, we're still very aware of what those are, you know, going through IEPs, 504s, those different kinds of things. And those definitely can transition into skills and knowledge for different roles. 
Right. I definitely think special educators on some level really should be looking at data jobs, data analyst jobs. I'm not seeing a lot of people move into it because there's a lot of upskilling there. But I think that they're the ones who are using data the most. Uh, not that any teacher doesn't, but special educators have a certain level of level of data um, requirements. So the rest of us don't. Absolutely. So, I mean, we've talked about, we've been dancing around Skip and talking all about it. Um, I posted links in the chat on LinkedIn Live and in, in Riverside so that people can go check it out. How but are like, you having you... conversation and managing the chat? I'm very impressed. <laughs> because I want, I want to get everybody in the spotlight. I want you to answer all the questions. I want them to hear from you. This is, this is what I have to do in this hour that I have with you. We have to get everybody involved. So I'm doing all the things and I'm totally engaged at the same time. I don't know. It's something people say multitasking is a miss. Sometimes I don't know what my brain does. It's able to do it. So I'm grateful. So can you tell us, like, give us like the origin story a, b a bit more about how you started Skip and like what drove you to basically, I, I kind of know because I've had you on the show, but like what drove you to bridge this gap for, you know, especially educators? Yeah. So I talked earlier just about how frustrated I was with those companies that were essentially gaslighting educators. Um, and not only were they paying like really, really poor wages, like 10 to 12 bucks an hour, but they were saying that the wages were competitive. Every single time I saw that $12 an hour and the competitive wages, I was like, well, wait a second. I just saw a tutoring job that pays 20 or 35. Actually, they were 35. Some of them were 50. Instructional coaching jobs are paying that. And I'm like, wait a second, how is this competitive? Um, it's only competitive with very few jobs. Um, and so it just, it just made me very frustrated. Um, I don't know if we can curse on this. So I'll just say it made me very frustrated. And <laughs> you can curse. I'll just put as explicit content. It's fine. But yeah, I, I understand that feeling. I get I get that. That's, that's rough. That's rough. And so I initially just started sharing these part time jobs. And then I was like, wait a second. So what somebody who's working, say, 10 hours a week tutoring after working a 40-hour work week, and then they still need to do all the other things as a teacher we need to do with grading and prepping because a 40-hour work week isn't enough. It's like, this doesn't sound like fun. And the more I was hearing from educators, they were like, actually, you know what I'd like? It's just a full-time job that lets me do what I love and pays me for it and gives me time off. And so that's when I started saying, wait a second. There are part-time jobs like that, but there are also full-time jobs like that. And then I started sharing jobs and it really snowballed from there. Um, and I think the coaching piece came in just because I have a lot of experience interviewing people. Um, I, I spent eight years on doing that for my, my local city and we hire about a hundred people or total. And some of those people, sometimes people leave. So <laughs> often we do a yeah, lot of there's turnover. Yeah, there's turnover. <laughs> <laughs> particularly in city, in city government. Um, and so it was, it was the sort of thing that I was like, wait a second, I have a skill set that is um, really useful. And I, as I just started offering advice, I was like, this is really something I enjoy doing. I really do like having people find something that they find really meaningful and that finds them meaningful back. And as I've been doing it longer and longer, I've also, I mean, it's really clear that ed tech is not going away. It's expanding. We can do it responsibly as a society or irresponsibly as a society, but we're doing it no matter what. And so I would rather have 
people who have taught in education be in those roles. So I feel like this is a place where we really do need to make sure that educators are moving into ed tech and that we're not just hiring um, people who have always worked in industry because then they're going to be focused on industry metrics and not right. on all of those student-centered metrics and educator-centered metrics, which really make a difference. And that if you don't understand, you're going to have a really hard time talking to an educator about your product or helping them to really use it effectively. So yeah, so it's evolved over time to really, to really be like, this is something that we need as a society. We need to be thinking about very carefully. Um, so yeah. That's, that's really a skip. And then also, honestly, I just really love data. And so being able to say, how can I analyze all this data? And there's so much data here and it's unstructured. I'm like, how do we structure this data and come to meaningful conclusions? So it's actually a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah I can't, I can only imagine. I wish I had your data mind. I do have a data driven mind, but I just love seeing like the little pie graphs and stuff and somebody else doing it for me. And I do like doing pivot tables and things at work. Um, those are fun to create and manipulate. But anyways, that's a conversation for another day. Yes, um, pivot tables I don't understand. <laughs> oh, no, there's so, it's so, I, I honestly thought it was more complex than what it really is. And one of my coworkers taught me how to use it. Hi, Dan. Thank you for teaching me pivot tables. Um, and it's awesome. I feel so good about anyways, uh, you know, so using, using that data and that metrics to really inform like decisions or like what the, what the latest trends and stuff are in the job market. And I'm really glad. And I'll say this, that, um, like instructional design and ed tech and all this stuff has been put on the map because of COVID because before people had no idea what the heck I was talking about when I said I'm an instructional designer. So they're like, you design websites, <laughs> um, you fix computers. No, <laughs> like I'm not a technician. I don't, I'm not geeks on call. I don't come to your house, you know, explain that. But now an instructional designer like up there, ed tech, like up there, it's, it's recognized and so many different roles. I mean, finding the, like the, like every so often an instructional design role, even in corporate was hard finding higher ed, even harder needle in the haystack, but now plethora, like you, you know, you, when you're posting your jobs and then I do my postings and sometimes I include your postings when LinkedIn doesn't have good stuff for the other ones. They just, they're a little bit off. Um, I do like eight, 16 a week. That, yeah. that was unheard of pre COVID. That's really interesting. And now I'm starting to see that we, we talked about this the last time, but that instructional design, and now we're getting like the management structure over the instructional design. So it's, it's becoming yeah. a fully department. and it's like, is it learning and development still? Is it something different? Yeah. So. You know, that's a conversation. Like I always haven't, like I talked to my, is, is instructional design a part of L&D? What is L&D? What's the differences? That's, that's a conversation I'm going to definitely need to have with more of an expert. Like I consider myself part, part of learning and development because of where I work and my title, but who knows, you know, L&D encompasses a lot of different, like it's an umbrella term for a lot of different roles in a lot of different departments. Right. Yeah. Cause HR is often, that's, that's the one where I see yeah. a lot of overlap with instructional design, learning development, HR. Yeah. I saw a job. Yeah. I saw a job that was, 
it said um, instructional design manager, but it was in HR. Yeah. It said with an HR focus. I had right. never seen that before. Yeah. I've never and seen like that before. Sales ones. That's also really, really popular. You need the sales background and the instructional design background. So mm -hmm. career paths. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really cool to see how it's evolving. Um, so are there any like additional like training opportunities for upskilling that you recommend, you know, to make this transition more smooth for people? I know you have some offerings on your site. You, you said you do some coaching, but are there any other things that you can recommend to people? So that's an interesting question because I was thinking about it. I mean, for instructional design, obviously, because there are some really technical skills that you need to learn, but we're starting to see a lot more customer success um, trainings and for trainings that are much more, let me step back for a second. So for instructional design, I think you definitely need to upskill, but this is another place where I was thinking about that imposter syndrome that we were talking about and how often is it that the reason we're looking at some of these courses for some of these jobs that educators move into really regularly, how often are we saying, oh, I need this training because I don't have the right skills? Um, yeah. And I'm not really sure. I think sometimes people do need to upskill, but I think sometimes we also just need to say, wait a second, I need to step back and identify my skills. Um, and sometimes I think that it's, a matter of working on a different scale um, in your existing um, school. So for instance, if you're doing a lot of program project management in your classroom, can you do that in your department or in your school? If you're doing it at your school level, can you do it on your district level? So really saying, do I need something more or can I actually use the systems I'm already working in and just do, do what I'm doing a little bit differently? in order to pitch myself more competitively. And so I think there are two ways that I think educators should probably start before they consider the upskilling conversation. One is definitely figuring out what are some good data tracking systems because we don't necessarily, we track a lot of data, but we don't necessarily track metrics that are useful for the job search. We track metrics that are useful for our students. So really saying, what are the metrics I need to know this year? let me actually track those for myself um, this year. Um, and then also saying, what are some ways that I can take what I'm already doing and expand it? I've been doing a bunch of trainings. Why don't I do a training series? Uh, I need to know some of the metrics about training. Let me start actually doing a survey before and after and tracking that information. So I think a lot of times it's less about upskilling and it's a lot more about just documentation and using opportunities that you're already, um, you already have in your own community. And that's another thing, volunteering. I think if you, if people feel like I don't quite have enough skills, you know where my HR skills come from? Volunteer work. Um, <laughs> being on a, being a board president, I got a lot of project performance improvement plans um, with executives <laughs> and also a lot of interviewing skills that all came from volunteering. I didn't get paid for any of that. I really should have probably. Um, for the number of hours I was putting in on some of those. But I think that there are opportunities for us to serve um, our schools and communities that will be more rewarding for us than upskilling, which is not to say that the programming, the programs are bad or not. I don't really, I don't really know. And I think that's the question that I have is do we need them? Yeah. It, it, like 
I get a question a lot too. Do I need to get another degree? The degree is not going to get you the role. Just like knowing all the technologies is not going to get you the role. It takes a lot more than just having the, I mean, here are all my degrees. I intentionally <laughs> put, like, they're not even hung up. They're all back. Here's my very expensive pieces of paper. And I'm very proud of them. I, I work really hard, but nothing can replace real world application and experience yes. in a role. And like you're saying, volunteering or freelance quick roles that give you like that six to 12 months experience in a certain position, you know, find those things or find like a good mentor who can teach you. And I love the programs that incorporate the internship or externship into their program. And it's not just at the end, it's throughout the experience yes. so that the person is growing, not only as an, in the academic space and as a learner, they're also growing as a professional at the same time. That if I had to give recommendations to higher education, every program, it doesn't matter what it is, needs some sort of internship, some sort of real world experience. I mean, if you think about the different subjects, everybody needs to have that, like whether you're a chemist, a biologist, instructional design, you're going into business management, you, you really need that real world experience because that's what's happening. That's where you get to see like all the things evolving, the different changes that are being made in the industry, the things that are specific to your industry. So, I mean, those types of things are invaluable to me. I agree. And I think that really reinforces too, it's not just the need to get that, that whole cycle going. It's really important to be tracking your impact across that cycle and being able to quantify what your um, value add is, because right. then you can talk about that then you can put that bullet point in your resume. Um, and it's like, that's why you put your education last because what's important is how you applied your education. Not exactly. I know. Like what is the RI on this? Tons of student loan debt, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know about everybody else, but it is for me. All right. <laughs> October hurts. October hurts. It hurts the budget this month. Um, but yeah, it, absolutely like the real world experiences is like nothing else and uh i recently had an intern who uh came from an institution that did what i just said had the internship you know throughout the program and then she got a role at a former where she graduated from as an undergrad as an instructional designer yeah it's really it's really cool stuff um let's see let's see what question we want to ask now um, I know we've kind of skirted around a lot of these questions that I have. We, we've, we've kind of answered most of them. Um, I really do want to give like 10, five minutes for Q&A, but I also want you to tell us a little bit about what does the future hold for Skip? Are there any things up and coming that you want to share with the audience about what you're doing and where they can find you and all those things? I already put your link in the chat. You know, yeah. I'm going to market you. you like crazy. Excellent. So I, the biggest thing that I'm doing is revamping my courses. So I have been doing a course, which was a combination um, self-directed, but I would come in um, and give feedback at certain points, like on a resume or on um, metrics and bullet points. And what I'm, well, A, I'm sunsetting that because the platform I'm using is sunsetting itself. So there's, there's, there's been no choice. Oh, well, that, that makes the decision real easy. <laughs> right. Um, but the other thing is that I, what I'm really learning is that some of this stuff we can automate a little bit and it can be much more fast, um, much, just much more efficient of a process. And so that's where the skills analysis is coming in. And so what I'm really, really doing is saying, how can I take the skills analysis tools and 
the one-on-one attention that people like and combine them. So um, look for some new products where I'm really leveraging um, the skills analysis to help you understand exactly what you need to include in your resume, how you can frame it, and thinking about it in terms of particular job titles and not just, these are my skills, these are the things I do, but these are the things that are best aligned for this for the jobs that I'm applying for. So I'm in the process of revamping that and definitely be making some announcements in the next month, depending on technology. It's really hard sometimes, you know, when you're like, I know how to do this and I know how to do this, but I can't do this. (laughs) And so I'm trying to find the technology that will let me put some things together. Um, But I'm really excited about it because I'm really hoping that it'll let me, it will make things easier for people is at the moment, you know, if you want to learn how to tailor a job, you really have to read a lot of job descriptions and you really have to go through a lot of work of reading your resume. So this will help cut that time, be a lot more specific to what your high level skills are. And I think it goes back to imposter syndrome. It will help people understand that you have so many skills and they are so relevant. Right. And the resume is just the first step. It's not the only step. People put so much weight on that. And while it's super important to get you the interview, this is a conversation for another time because we'll come back and talk about this is interviewing for the roles and how that all plays that all plays out. And and there's a lot of things I'll say right now going on in the chat about like, where can you find this real world experience? Like, how do I get this? Having a lot of imposter syndrome. I would say one of the other things to do too, and where I've gotten a lot of my experiences through networking and talking to different people who are doing like smaller projects. And they're like, could you just give me feedback on this? Or could you just help me redesign this graphic? Or could you help me, you know, put a, put together like a outline of a course? Um, like that kind of stuff, those, those, those quick little things give me like, you know, insights into one skill. So I would definitely say like networking and like LinkedIn is my, is, is my jam. It's like my Mecca for, you know, uh, connecting with people. And I've had so many conversations and I encourage you not to feel scared to do that, to have conversations with people. And it seems like coffee chats are getting a bad rap on LinkedIn. So have little lunch and learns or whatever (laughs) you want to call them and just get together and like, just talk to somebody about what projects they're working on and like, what are their goals? It's like, it's amazing how similar we become in our, in our approach and our, our routines to, you know, transition roles, but it's also amazing to find out like, Oh, this might be good for me to try this. And, you know, I really like that part of the networking. Yes, indeed. And I, th- I think that's something ed tech companies could do a better job of, of really, there's so much um, product development where they're reaching out to educators for feedback. And if they could actually integrate the educators into some of those processes as a thank you for participating in this. Um, I I think that it would really be, it would be beneficial for both sides um, because it is hard to find, find the people to network with and it's intimidating as well uh, to, to reach out to a stranger. Especially when so many people don't answer, they're like, you know, I I can't tell you how many templates of LinkedIn in mess in mail messages I've gotten and, and people are just like they ask for things right off the bat and I'm like you don't know me you need to get to know me I want to know you I want to develop an authentic connection please just don't sell me something please just just demand an ID skill or some review from me please ask me about myself 
show me that you looked at my profile. You know, I, I try to do that when I connect with other people. Um, and interact in the comments too, because that's something it helps it helps the person you're interacting with because it shares with LinkedIn that it's interesting content. And it also is a way that, you know, if you're asking a good question, you can build a network in those conversations and the, the question, build a conversation. And I've actually made some really, really nice connections with people that it just started from a, a little thread where we were going back and forth about an idea. And then we've created much more of a relationship. So I think that, and Facebook, you can do that on the Facebook groups too. Um, it's interesting. A lot of industry conversations happen on Facebook in Facebook groups, which really surprised me that LinkedIn has never, LinkedIn has taken off for public comments, but it's never taken off for private groups. Um, so yeah, Facebook, Facebook can be a little friendlier sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I agree with that too. You got to find where you're comfortable in that space. All right, so we got about three and a half minutes left of your time because I know you and I an hour we could talk forever. Really, we could talk forever. It went by really fast, and I'm so glad we have a wonderfully engaged audience here who's asking. They're asking a lot of questions and they're making a lot of comments. Definitely, people are talking about it. imposter syndrome. One person wanted to know hers. I, I'm not going to say this person's name right because I have such an American Southern mix of Northern accent. I think it's hers in. I don't, but they're asking and tell me if I said that wrong. I'm so sorry. Please put the link linguistic and I, I, I'm happy to shift and make edits. Um, so what, what difference does it make whether you are teaching or tutoring adults or children ask for pay? Is there like a, is there a difference in that pay? Wait, I in missed that what situation? you said. Can you say it one more time? So they're asking if there's a difference in pay between teaching or tutoring adults or children. Is there like a different, like higher, lower? Yeah, I think that in general, we, so when I was thinking about that earlier, I was really thinking about it in terms of training. And I think the difference is really comes down to a business sense. So when you're training adults, there's a corporate business purpose. And Mm -hmm. so you can generally make more money with it because companies are, are making more money because their employees are either. Um, more efficient, or they have more skills and they can do more things. Um, kids don't have that economic benefit. And I think that's really where the difference lies is that when a kid learns how to do math better, it helps them in 20 years and it helps our society in 20 years. Um, when an adult can um, speak a language differently, that helps them immediately because you can open up a new business market. So I think that's that's kind of the distinction that I would see is is what is the underlying revenue um that that is a very sad sad truth i think but it really i mean that is the the thing is that businesses even if they're a nonprofit education adjacent nonprofit we are really talking about can we monetize the results that we get and that's a real difference from education and i think that requires us to shift our mindset into some things that we think are really valuable if you can't monetize them, it's harder to make a, a business case for doing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things um, Michael asked is what are some ways, and this is, I don't know if this is in our wheelhouse, but maybe we can, we can kind of figure it off. out. <laughs> what are some ways you can tactfully request feedback while working remotely? Ooh. I just ask. We have things, 
So the 30, 60, 90 plan is something I'm seeing a lot, especially in the corporate space of like what you're going to do and you have to check in with your supervisor. There's a lot of different plan implementations and milestones that are put into place. Um, I would say regular one-on-one chats with your manager, your team, um, because feedback comes in all forms, right? It's going to come back in the form of what you're doing on your projects and, and how you are as a worker and as a teammate collaborative, that kind of stuff. So I would just say ask for it and also get familiar with what types of tools your company has that, you know, you're where you're tracking those milestones and you're tracking that information. Right. And I think, yeah, I think it can feel awkward to say, how am I doing? Um, because that's such a broad, open-ended question. But if you come at it with some really specific, um, spe- real specifics uh, that are around benchmarking and those metrics that um, Holly just mentioned, you can really say, you know, on our last project, what were some things that worked really well? What were some things that we can improve on? And so framing it in terms of um, really concrete steps to change, but also feedback around the product and not the people makes people a lot more comfortable in giving that feedback. So, yeah, I think that's all the questions we had in the chat. We had some, we had some really engaging, we had a really engaging audience out on the LinkedIn live space and a lot of like claps and like a, you know, like jazzy hands. It was exciting. And that everybody's really grateful that this has been very informative. So any last things you want to share, any words of wisdom, people stepping into this space, looking for roles that they like, what is the, we can probably end with this. What is the first thing you need to do when you're transitioning into the role? What's the first thing you should do? When you're putting on the spot, (laughs) you're transitioning into a new role. What's the first thing you need to do? Have a 30, 60, 90 day plan. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) No, but I definitely think really making sure you talk to every single person who is going to be on your team or adjacent to your team in the first 30 days. Just really start building those connections because particularly in a remote environment, the connections are harder to develop. Um, And just asking people really generally to tell you about what they do. Um, What do they see? uh, Who worked in your job previously? How did they interact? What did they really value about those interactions? Um, Get to know people and get to know the tasks. And don't stress about having to um, really perform the first, I mean, that whole 30, 60, 90 day, it's such a brilliant structure. It's usually at the end of 90 days, you understand our organization well enough to do something. So, um, it's a process and you don't have to hit the ground running in a week, the way we ask teachers to do or less. Absolutely. And I tell people 20 minutes a day, I'm like, don't, do not make it your full-time job looking for a job because you're going to burn out. And I'm, I'm looking up your profile right now on LinkedIn so I can tell everybody to connect with you. Oh yes. Thank you. But it's really, it's, it, it really is difficult if you make it your full-time role. Like you will, you will become that person who's like, I've been searching for this job for 500 years and I haven't found anything 20 minutes a day. Yeah. Yeah. And take time off. Um, I really feel that when I take time off, it just all the ideas start to come out. Um, And I think when you when you take a pause, what you'll start to do is say, oh, now I see how I could have framed my experience in that way. Or I forgot that I always do that. And wait, that's actually really important. Um, So give yourself time to rest. And yeah, don't don't make it 
don't make it something that that overtakes your life um because because yeah. it can burnout, and really fast burnout is real <laughs> burnout is huge in the in the job industry well Chelsea, I always love talking to you. It's always a great conversation and I learn something new every time. And I know that people are so thankful that you have a site like Skip and the mindset that you have for helping educators transition into roles. And of course, the salary, the 60K plus, I, most of your jobs are like higher than that, the salaries that I see. So that's really awesome. Um, and I know sometimes you message me like, look at this one. It's It's so... This is so awesome. It's really great. So everybody needs to connect with Chelsea on LinkedIn and go to skip. And if you have any questions, you know, definitely reach out to us. And this is going to, this was recorded. It's going to be made into a video. It's going to be on our YouTube page. And it's also going to be made an audio episode. So if you're going to go back, um, watch, listen, learn some more, you know, put it on repeat and share all the things with your friends. So yes, thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy our conversations and our future conversations, the ones, the yeah. ones we're going to be having. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that's coming. <laughs>